Uh, we are in a series called The Gospel Plus, and we have been singing songs like Living Hope, which tell the story of Jesus. It's a concise way of understanding this is the gospel. And each week I have pledged to you a gospel summary of some kind. It might be a scripture, it might be an image, who knows <laughs> what's coming down the pike. But uh, this morning our gospel summary is a verse. I'm going to read this for you. This is from Philippians chapter 2. You might have heard it before. It's quite popular. Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's an appropriate response. That's the gospel. This is Jesus, the Son of God. This passage is believed to be one of the oldest Christian hymns. This is sometimes called the Christ hymn. The way that it's written has a format of a poem that was believed to be sung in the earliest of Christian gatherings. Philippians, the book that we have in the New Testament, was probably written around the year, like the early 60s AD, like a generation after Jesus. But this song, this hymn, was believed to be much earlier than that. So when Paul writes these words to the Philippian church, they would have said, Ah, I know that one. If I wrote you guys a, an encouraging letter that's saying, I just want to share with you, I'm, I'm so excited about the amazing grace of God. Amazing grace. How sweet this sounds, right? Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You guys would go like, Ah, I see what you did. We know that song. We like that song. This is how it would have been familiar to the church when Paul wrote these words. This passage is a great way to summarize what the gospel is, and quite possibly one that the Christians uh, had been using as their own gospel summary. That might be why it was so well known and so popular. And it might be the oldest and earliest gospel summaries that we have, which I think is pretty cool too. Uh, and we get it. We can see why this became like a Billboard Hot 100 hit in the early church, and it stayed at the top of the charts. They loved this song back then, this Christ hymn, and we love this now. You've probably heard it before. It was one of my memory verses when I was growing up in the church, and I could probably recite it verbatim today. Most of it, anyway. Got all this great stuff in there about who Jesus is is. It tells us about the Jesus that we follow. It affirms some good theology. It says Jesus was in very nature God. Yes, Jesus was God. He wasn't just some guy who was delusional. He wasn't a ghost. No, he was, he was real human in flesh, but he was also the Son of God. It's saying a lot in just that short little phrase. And it says he became nothing. We're like, wow, that's, that's like literally true. Jesus, you know, born of a virgin. He was in Mary's womb. He was God with all the power of God. And then, whoa, came, hmm, nothing. That's amazing. If 
but he humbled himself to death on a cross. He didn't just preach humility, he modeled it 100% by submitting to a shameful criminal death on a cross. And then God raised him up to the highest place. Turns out the last do become first, just like he taught, and it's a great gospel summary passage. And it is about Jesus, but let's not forget, in context, it's an exhortation of how we should treat one another. Don't forget the very beginning of this passage. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Describes all these great things about Jesus, but it sets it up by saying, you know what? That's how you should treat each other. So our gospel summary passage this morning is also our sermon text. As we consider to live, or consider how the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, informs some common areas of our lives. Last week we talked about the gospel plus money. This week we want to understand and communicate how Christians understand the gospel plus relationships. So what you get in Philippians 2 is kind of like a handbook for how the gospel should affect your relationship with other people. If being a disciple means striving to be like Jesus, then this reminds you of what Jesus was like. He was not so caught up in what it meant to be equal with God. He didn't take advantage of his own power or position, but instead he submitted himself. He humbled himself and he trusted God. And though he was the highest, he made himself the lowest. Philippians is telling us, do the same thing in your relationships with each other. Saw what Jesus did, do that. Now let's think about this. How does this exhortation, this standard of being like Jesus in relationships compared to the worldly wisdom that we've soaked up regarding relationships. It would be easy to say, well, the church values relationships and everybody else doesn't. But that's not true. That's not true. Most of our non-Christian friends and neighbors are not ignoring beat-up Samaritans on the side of the road, or they're not taking advantage of people left and right or whenever they have the opportunity to. Certainly there are some exceptions of people not doing relationships well, but I would say there's this baseline level of civility and kindness that you can expect from people these days. And to be honest, I've seen examples of love and concern and sacrificial care outside of the church that rivals that of many Christians that I've known. But, that being said, I've also observed that non-Christian view of relationships includes the understanding that loving and serving others is completely optional. You don't have to. You can if you choose to, uh, but if someone doesn't want to interact with their neighbors or their various communities, that's okay. They have the right to not. And few people will fault you if you only look out for yourself or your immediate family and you disregard others. You can get away with that. I've also noticed that in general, outside of the church, relationships are highly selective. You'll notice that people find our people, our kind. These are, the, these are the folks, these are my people, the people I feel comfortable with, the people that I choose to spend the most time with. Usually they have shared interests with me, shared beliefs, my, our personality types complement each other well. And once we find those people, we tend to kind of circle up real tight. This is our, these are my people, I'm good. Outside of the church, tolerance only goes so far. 
and it eventually leads to systematic exclusion. <laughs> I wrote that earlier this week, and I just read that sentence now. I'm like, ooh, that's kind of strong. Tolerance outside of the church. Tolerance only goes so far and eventually leads to systematic exclusion. Okay. Another observation is that in non-Christian relationships, you often only get one chance with people. You make things weird. You make things awkward. If you let me down, if you break my trust, that's it. There's a lot of other people out there that I can uh, be in relationship with. It. You blow it, you are not invited to the next barbecue. You broke my trust. I mean, it's a practical thing to do. If you break my trust, I have to protect myself. I'm sorry, but I have to let you go. People who wrong us are easily cut off. And that standard, you may notice, falls way short of forgiving someone 77 times. And it's not really laying down our lives the way that Jesus modeled. Maybe the reason that churches attract so many broken people is because these folks have burned bridges outside. They kind of like overstayed their welcome in other social relationships. And then they come to the church and they find a greater measure of love and patience and forgiveness and welcome because we are the body of Christ. Amen. Or at least, hopefully, that happens. That, that should happen. And the policy of only forgiving so far is usually framed as a good thing, like I said. You know, we don't want people to be enabled we don't want people to take advantage of us. We don't want to become a doormat. That's not healthy. I've even advised people along those lines before. Said, you know, you know, you, you, you've got to establish some healthy boundaries. And sometimes that's something you should prioritize over the needs of others. I've used the uh, put your own oxygen mask on first image that, you know, like when you're on an airplane, they say, don't help everybody else with their oxygen mask. You've got to put your own on first. I've given that advice to people. So I think it's good advice. I'll tell you a story. I was talking to a friend the other day, and he said he was being he was in a fight with his roommate. He was being criticized for letting people walk all over him. His roommate was saying, This person is so needy, they're not respecting your time, they're not respecting your needs, and you should be cutting them off. And my friend was thinking, uh, I think I need to love this person. I need to extend more time and extend more patience. It's clear that I need to love this person. But the roommate was saying, it's clear that you need to ditch this person. You need to never talk to them again. And the more I, I listened to the details of this story unfold, it became clear to me that there were two values that were at odds with each other. Kingdom values and worldly values. They both made sense. Each argument was like, because this is what I value, this is what I think you should do. Because this is what I value, this is what I think should happen. So the roommate was saying, it became clear that the roommate's value was respect. You're not getting respect. You need to raise yourself up to a place where you get that respect because that is the highest virtue that I can imagine. And my friend was saying, well, I don't, that's, not, that's not the way of Jesus. What I think I need to do is go the opposite direction. I need to stoop down to where I can care for this person, because that's where Christ is leading me. If respect is up here, and the virtue of Christ is down here, then like it makes sense that if you're here, there's different opinions on which way you ought to go. Okay. 
This is another story that I heard recently. A friend who, uh, his daughter is coming home from work, and a neighbor is late at night. The neighbor backed out of his driveway and smashed into his daughter's car. Like, oh man, what happened? Everybody was okay, nobody was hurt, but the, you know, the, the door was messed up. It was like some significant body damage that needed to be dealt with. And to the guy's credit, the guy who backed into the car and crashed it up, he totally owned it. He's like, oh, you know what? It's my fault, I'm so sorry, but here's the thing. I don't have insurance, so uh, I'm hoping we can work this out some way. Like, yeah, it's, I don't know what to do. Like I said, it was late, and so my friend said, all right, you know, they exchanged information, and they're neighbors. They live right across the street from each other. They didn't really know each other. They said, let's deal with this in the morning. Let's talk about it tomorrow. So my friend uh, makes sure his daughter's okay. He goes and talks about it with his wife, and um, they pray about it together. And then the next morning, they text the neighbor, like, okay, we want to share with you what we think we're going to do. So they go outside, and they talk to the guy. He says, okay, yeah, I mean, again, my fault. Like, what can we do to make this right? My friend said, um, we're Christians, and we have received grace from Christ. Like, that forgiveness that we've received for our sins in Jesus is really important to us. And we just decided in this situation, we want to we wanna just forgive you. We want to say, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. You're fine. Uh, you don't owe us anything. We're good. And my friend told me the neighbor, like, broke down in tears. It was like, oh, the best news that he'd heard. Because he'd been through a hard time, couldn't really afford to pay for it, couldn't, certainly couldn't afford to have them hold him to whatever standard he would have been held to. They said, well, you don't have insurance, so you're going to have to pay the price for that. I like that story for a couple reasons. One, it is a way of living the gospel. It's an answer to the question, what does it mean that I believe the gospel, that I, I, I behave like Jesus, and I try to people like Jesus. It's a practical response. I like that it flies in the face of worldly wisdom. Because in that situation, and you may have been in that situation, the thing to do, you know, get your car fixed. You even admit it. It's your fault. There's $500 worth of damage. I need $500 one way or another. Your insurance company or your pocket or, you know, you scrub my floors for 10 years. That's usually where we go. We go to equity. What I like about this story the Christ hymn. Yeah. Jesus was not interested in equity. He had equity with God the Father. He had all the power in the universe, and he didn't use that to his own advantage. But instead, he said, oh, I'm going to set that aside. And I'm going to come down here, and I'm going to love, and I'm going to serve, I'm going to lay down my life, give up my rights. That's what happened in this story. But the roommate's concern is still valid, right? What happens to those who practice this when other people don't? What if I'm the only person trying to live like Jesus? Aren't I going to get hurt? Aren't I going to get taken advantage of? Might they nail me to a cross? I mean, yeah, that's a concern. That's definitely something that we have to wrestle with. But Christians are called to ask the question in a way that casts the vision for the kingdom of God. Maybe not what happens when everyone lives like this, but what could happen if some of us did, or if we started taking this Jesus principle seriously? What if it just started with a few and then grew to something bigger? 
proceed? Anybody? I want to tell you a fable. Tell a story this morning, huh? Here's a fable. You probably have heard this before. It's a common story, but I promise you it has a surprise ending that you have not heard before. The story goes like this. A man dies, and he's offered a tour of heaven and hell. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Which one do you want to go to? I'll show, I'll show you around first. So he gets in an elevator or something with an angel, and they go down the elevator uh, into hell. The door's open, and he sees a table, the banquet table. There's all these amazing foods there. There's all these people sitting around the table, and he thinks, well, that's not so bad. I thought hell was like, messed up. This looks pretty nice. Uh, this might be okay. Until he noticed that all the people that were sitting at the table, uh, their elbows didn't bend. So they're trying to get the food. They're trying, to, they're trying to eat it, and they're trying to feed themselves, but they can't. And they hadn't figured this out. They, they're not dropping grapes in their mouths. Right and they're starving. And they're in agony. Because they are right in front of this beautiful food. And they can't get to it. It's just out of reach. And he goes, oh, I see why this is hell. That would be torture. He goes, okay, come on. Let's get back in the elevator. I want to show you what heaven looks like. So they get in the elevator, and they Doors open, and it's the same scene. It's a table, the banquet, this huge table with all these amazing, delicious foods, and it's people sitting around the table, and their arms don't bend. It's the exact same thing. People are, they can't, they can't do it. But the difference is, these people uh, are eating, and they are feasting, and they are celebrating because they feed each other. They figured out how to feed one another. And that's, according to this fable, the difference between heaven and hell. Here's the surprise ending that I promised you. You know where I heard this story most recently? I heard this in a public school here in Livermore. I was invited to a, a beginning of the year assembly, like a yay, rah, rah, we're back. And like, here's your teachers, here's the science department, here's all this stuff. It's like all the whole school together in one great big assembly. And the principal of this public Livermore school gets up and said, tells this exact same story. Exactly. Arms that don't bend, heaven and hell, the difference between the two. And he says, that's what I want our campus to be like. That's how I want you guys to treat each other this coming school year. And I wonder when he told that story, if he realized that he was introducing a whole campus full of 6th and 7th and 8th graders to the Christ campus gospel summary passage for this morning. I wonder if he realized he was introducing them to the vision of what a better world we would live in if people in their relationships one another, with one another had the same mindset of Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I wonder what our world looks like when we cast that vision and when we live that out. I'd love to give you a homework assignment. Go and do this. But applying the gospel in our lives is going to be situation by situation uh, basis. We're going to have to figure this out as we go. And we may not know what it's going to be until we're in that moment and say, ah, 
okay. I have every right to hold you accountable. I have every right to my rights. But I want to be like Jesus, and I'm going to set those aside. I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to love and serve instead. That's the advice we get from Paul to the Philippian church. In our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, along with Don Pemberton, I just, I applaud, I applaud this vision for what it looks like if we are like Jesus. I'm excited to see what that looks like in our relationships with the people who wrong us, with the people who frustrate us, with the people who love us, with the people we're closest to, with the people we happen upon. God, give us your eyes to see. Give us a kingdom vision of how this plays out in our lives. And may your kingdom come because of faithful Christians like the ones who are hearing this message this morning. Will you give us opportunities to love and serve? Will you give us courage to do the hard thing? Will you make us more and more like Jesus each day? This is our prayer in his name. Amen.